I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. I often order a book weeks or even months before I can interview the author or authors. Sometimes the conversation, uh, conversations are very timely, others not so much. Today we will be speaking to an author whose new book might be considered an evergreen. It will always be timely. That is because it is about overcoming toxic polarization. Does anyone think that we will be doing that sometime soon? The book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. The author is Peter T. Coleman. He is professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, where he holds a joint appointment at Teachers College and the Earth Institute and directs two research centers. He is the author of Making Conflict Work, Harnessing the Power of Disagreement and the 5%, Finding Solutions to Seemingly Impossible Conflicts, among other books. I am very happy to have with us today Peter T. Coleman. Good morning, Peter, or good afternoon for you. Uh, good morning to you, and, and thank you for having me, Bob. Uh, and, I, and I love the name of your show. <laughs> does that give you a hint as to where my interests lie? It does. It's provocative. It's, uh, it's contradictory, inherently contradictory. I love it. It's fantastic. And I did have some opening music that were from, uh, was from Carol King's Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> Very fitting. I thought so. So, um, could you tell me about uh, the reason you wanted to write this book? Yeah, so this is something... Uh, so, um, right, I'm a professor at Columbia University. I run a couple of research centers on, on conflict and conflict resolution and on peace processes. Uh, and so one of the areas of research that I focus on is what we call intractable conflicts, long-term difficult conflicts that last too long, sometimes become generational conflicts. You can think of anything from Northern Ireland to to the Middle East conflict, um, you know, between Israelis and Palestinians and others, these things that just go on and on and on. So we study those and we try to understand the conditions under which conflicts like those do change. And because of that, um, I set up a lab at Columbia uh, a few years ago. We called it the Difficult Conversations Lab, where we study people who have opposing views on some, you know, potentially morally divisive issue like you know, abortion or like uh, climate change for some. And um, and we look at the conditions under which those conversations go well or go poorly. So those that's the kind of focus of the study. And because of that, when Donald Trump was elected, um, I started to get approached by various media organizations and by uh, community groups that were doing work in trying to bridge the, you know, red-blue divide in this country and I became concerned over time that although there are many good faith attempts to do that work, too many of them were uninformed by research, uninformed by the science that tells us about the conditions when these kinds of conversations go well or go poorly. Um, and because of that, I thought it incumbent on me to try to put out a book that would, you know, provide stories about the research that are sufficiently compelling and then make recommendations for people who are interested in trying to, you know, de-escalate negative relationships in their life and their family at work 
um, because the political divide of our time has seeped into so many personal relationships and professional relationships, and it's making us, you know, sick as a nation. I, I like the fact that uh, in many parts of your book, you accentuate the positive, so to speak. You are very hopeful overall. And one of the statements early on in the book is a mutually hurting stalemate is also a mutually enticing opportunity. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, that comes from something called ripeness research, which uh, um, academics that study, you know, long term, highly polarizing oftentimes violent conflicts between, you know, different parties. Um, and and on, they study the conditions when those parties agree to sort of stop fighting and, you know, come to the table and negotiate a peace treaty and then, you know, basically change the circumstances of their life. And, um, and ripeness theory suggests that the conditions that are necessary oftentimes for the, that to happen are those. One is that you have to have a sufficient um, number of individuals or members of both groups that are hurting. Mut there's a mutually hurting stalemate. Both sides are exhausted, fed up, can't, don't see a way of either winning this conflict, you know, prevailing in any way, and are just you know, tired and fed up of the, of the costs of the dispute. Um, and so that's one condition, but then you also, they also need to have some sense of a way out, of an alternative, of, of a way to, you know, a, a different way to approach the conflict or to avoid the issues that can get them out of the trap that they've been stuck in. And so those are the two conditions that are necessary. And I felt that today, um, these days in the United States and elsewhere, um, there's enough misery in this country. People are exhausted and fed up with the political infighting and the and the vitriol and the hate, um, and the you know the entertainmentization of 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 political hate, and that they're really ready for, you know, uh, some people, most people, I think in America, are really ready for uh, finding an alternative. And so that's what the way out focuses on is is what science tells us helps, um, you know, families and communities and, and, and societies to end conflicts like this and to pivot and, and start anew and, and take, a, take a more healthy direction. Well, when you have some people that believe the other group of people are dead set on harming our country, um, it's hard to get them to sit down. But then again, you did that in Brookline, Massachusetts. Could you explain what happened there? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's true that today, um, particularly people over 65, are much more inclined to believe that members of the other political party are the biggest threat to America today and are really actively trying to harm our country. Um, I mean, the reality is that our perception of the other side and their intentions and how extreme they are um, are not as um, our perceptions are divorced to some degree from the reality. The reality is that there's only small, you know, tribes, small extreme groups um, on both on either side that are much more intransigent, much more extreme in their attitudes and extreme in their kind of recommendations for how to go forward. Most Americans are more moderate are you know this is a there's a group called more in common that studies polarization around the world and they study the u.s and they find that some moderate middle groups um 
are fed up, are exhausted, and, and want a way out. So, um, so our perceptions are oftentimes off in terms of really how extreme everybody on the other side is. It's, it's small groups of extreme people. And what happened in Brookline, so I start the book with this story, and this was not, um, uh, this wasn't an intervention that I ran. It was an intervention uh, run by um, a woman named Laura Chasen and a group um, in the Boston area called the Public Conversations Project, which is kind of a guy, uh, dialogue, um, you know, social intervention group that's been around there for decades. And they got involved, um, at, uh, well, they had been involved in the Brooklyn area um, trying to reduce hostilities around the pro-life, pro-choice uh, de- debates that were taking place in the 80s and 90s, which were pretty vitriolic. They were pretty intense. They were pretty damning. And so they were trying to work with community members to bring down the temperature. In the context of that, there was a horrible shooting that t- t- took place in 1994 of several women's clinics. Several women were killed or injured. Um, and it really just was a destabilizing rupture for the entire nation, but also for the community as a whole. And so um, a a group of women um, from the Public Conversations Project, uh, leaders on both sides of the the debate, pro-life leaders, pro-choice leaders, identified six very influential women in their own communities and then invited them to come together for a for a secret um, dialogue process that would just take place over a month, that they would meet, they agreed to meet sort of four times over a month. And both sides were very suspicious of this, very concerned about, you know, opening themselves up to the other side that they really saw as either murderers or as insane. Um, and so they were very hesitant to do it, but they were willing to do it. They trust the, you know, the facilitators of the process and so they did come together, and they met, and they they met over a month, which was difficult, but somewhere hopeful. And then they agreed to meet longer, and they met here again in secret. No one knew that they were meeting. No one in their in their own families or communities knew, because you know they were all afraid of the the, the possible violent repercussions of their meetings. Um, and eventually, they continued these conversations, and they went on for five and a half years Hmm. and what was promising and powerful about this experience is that despite the fact that they these six women were you know basically mortal enemies coming into this conversation they really viewed the other as evil or insane when they first came in over the period of these many years of conversations and safe facilitation they were able to really transform the nature of their relationships. They became much more, uh, I'm sorry, there's, a, there's an ambulance going by. I don't know if you can hear that. I can't. Yeah, I hope it's not but for they, you. Uh, go ahead. I hope it's not for you. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay, thanks. Um, but they, they agreed to do this. They, they stayed together for five and a half years. They had these facilitated conversations and as they describe it they grew to really deeply care for one another and respect one another and um and their attitudes on these issues on the pro-life pro-choice debate became even further apart so the the irony or the the paradox of what happened is that you know they learned that the other side wasn't evil 
that the other side was respectable and 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 decent and well-meaning and well-intentioned and um, and so they they grew to care for one another and respect each other um, and still differ on this particular issue. And then as the women sort of, they came out publicly together in an article and they described their, their multi-year dialogue process in the Boston Globe. They published something in January of 2001. Um, and in doing so, they, they in many ways started to affect the, the temperature, the climate around political uh, discord um, between uh, members of different countries. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting a... Uh, sorry. It's okay. Um, they started to get um, uh, affect the the way people talked about these issues and the way activism was handled, not only in the Boston area but even beyond that in in, in the nation. I believe so. They really had an impact that was an if, impact on the whole climate of the political debate around pro life and pro choice that you know, basically was a, a, a product of these, the courage of these women and the facilitation that took place and their commitment to it. And so to, I use it as a parallel to talk about how these kinds of periods of tense, sometimes violent political divides can end, and they can, their end can be facilitated by leaders, community-based leaders that are influential in their own right. Um, but it takes time. It takes effort. It takes courage, um, and so that's uh, that, that's the story I begin the book with. And what I got out of just not just that story, but other stories, is that what has to happen for do two disparate groups to be able to talk to one another is there has to be trust. Would you say that? that yeah, there has. To, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there has to be trust in something, not not necessarily trust in the other side, right? Uh, these women came together, agreed to come together because they trusted the third parties. They trusted the women that said, you know, said, trust me, we'll go, um, I'll create a space that's safe, that's anonymous and confidential. No one will know about this. Um, and so in, in doing so, they trusted someone to have a process that was legitimate and worthwhile uh, and and you know both both physically safe and psychologically safe for them, and then over time, what started to happen is that trust grew, um, and it spread through all the participants. And so, in the end, they ultimately came to deeply trust and care for one another. Um, but it didn't start with a trust for members of the other side. It really trusted for members of the professionals that were bringing people together. The mediators. The mediators, yeah. yeah. So here's a question for you. Um, if Would the two groups in Brookline have been able to speak to one another if one group just constantly lied and the other didn't? Well, you know, again, uh, uh, it would have made it very difficult. And I have to say, you know, just to be candid about this, their, their early conversations were extremely difficult. This was not an easy process. Part of what happens when facilitators bring groups like this together is that they they identify and establish a set of kind of norms of communication, and they get everybody to agree to those norms. And when the norms are violated, they have to go back and say, "Look, we agreed to a certain way of talking to each other and a certain process, and if we can't 
honor that, we can't continue. So they, the facilitators will oftentimes le- oftentimes leverage those you know norms that people have accepted or bought into. So you know in in any type of you know one of the reasons why what I one of the things my book recommends or that I recommend to people these days is if if you're really interested in engaging with people on the other side. Given the vast differences in our beliefs and our attitudes and our news information that we're getting these days, it's oftentimes really necessary to find people to help you have those conversations. I mean, again, if this is somebody in your family that you know, if it's a neighbor who you know well enough and respect and trust, then you can certainly try to have those conversations about you know the, any of these issues. But because of the riptide of, you know, political contempt for the other side that we're all trapped in, it's a very difficult conversation to have. And if you believe the other side is disingenuous, is lying, or is using facts that are made up by some, you know, other group, um, then they're very difficult conversations to have. That's why what I recommend is that if you want to have those conversations and you find them difficult to do on your own, that you reach out to um, some of the many groups in this country that are facilitating those kinds of conversations, and many are in your your neck of the woods. There's a website called the Bridging Divides Initiative, and it's built by a, a group at Princeton. And what they've been doing is they've been identifying all of the what they call bridge-building groups across the country, and then they map them for you. So if you go to their website, there's a map of the United States, and you can zoom into, you know, your state, your county, your your town, and you can identify the the groups that are actively already established and working there, and you can reach out to them and say, you know, I'm interested in in trying to learn more and understand this, and and basically have better relationships with members of my community, um, but I you, you know I need to figure out a way to do that. People will invite invite you in, and they they offer these kinds of facilitated processes that these days are oftentimes necessary to begin those conversations. And yet, um, social media could exacerbate the differences, which is why you state in the book, social media is to polarization and violence what carbon is to climate change, namely an accelerant. It's true. I mean, uh, you know, social media is a relatively new phenomenon in our culture. But if you look at the oversized effect, it's had both positive and negative effects, by the way, but certainly around political polarization and weaponization of information um, or even false information, you know, false information and, and, uh, and lies. Um, social media has been an accelerant. It it it, it um it's taken what has been political tensions in our country and divisions in our country that have been existed before social media. You know, this, this pattern that we're on of political contempt, which is the state we're in right now, is a 50-year a pattern. This started in the mid-1970s. Um, we started to see indications of more, you know, affective polarization, which is contempt for the other side and warmth for your side. Um, and, you know, and uh, what they call um, uh, ideological consistency, which is where you're not really paying attent- close attention to the issues anymore, the major divisive issues. You're just sort of following the lead of your 
of your what the authorities tell you, what your political leaders tell you. Um, so there have been many indications of this happening, but you really see social media and the weaponization of information on social media have an outside effect that just brings everything up to another level. There's a study out that recently that said something like 80% of the content on Twitter is put out by 10% of the participants. And typically the most active, engaged, extreme voices in politics are the people that are controlling the, the discourse on social media. So even if you're just not, not responding and just passively uh, consuming social media, mostly what you're seeing and reading are con- is content from extreme view- points of view. Um, and that, you know, is a major contributor to why we're so stuck in this pattern. Well, there was a recent dust-up uh, because uh, President Biden mentioned that 12 people were pushing out the lies on Facebook about uh, not getting a vaccine. Just 12 people. It's not even a percentage. Uh, if that is true, yeah. uh, that's terrible. It is terrible. I suspect it is true. You know, there's a new book that's just come out um, called The Ugly Truth, and it's two New York, New York Times reporters that have done a deep dive into Facebook, and in Facebook in particular, and Facebook's responsibility for um, misinformation, their awareness of the fact when they're being weaponized, and their resistance, their hesitancy to really do anything substantive about it. Um, it's not just Facebook, because it, uh, Twitter can also be abused. Other you know, major platforms can be abused uh, and can be weaponized. But, but Facebook is one of the biggest, and it's the most, one of the most powerful. And it really does seem like the business model of Facebook is not to reduce harm, right? That they don't want to do anything that will affect their market share. And so they're very hesitant to come, you know, to, to uh, clamp down on people that abuse their platform. And in some cases, as you know, in South Sudan and Myanmar and elsewhere, it's been, it's been weaponized to the point of promoting genocide. Um, and here it's been weaponized, um, yes, around COVID, COVID and vaccines, um, which, you know, to date has killed, what, 600,000 Americans? Uh, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a considerable weapon um, that can be abused and is being abused and really needs to be reined in. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Peter T. Coleman, whose latest book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. And I would venture a guess that we have uh, as much toxic polarization within our country now as we've had almost at any time in the past outside of the Civil War. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's accurate. I know that um, John Meacham uh, was on Fareed Zakaria's GPS show a couple of weeks ago, and he was comparing the current state of political polarization in America to uh, what we saw in the 1850s in America, which was, of course, just before our Civil War, because at that time you had a lot of propaganda and misinformation in the media. You had a large, you know, secessionist movement, people that no longer agreed or, or would participate with the government. Um, and you had a contested election, and that combination is very parallel to what we're seeing today. And, you know, there are people that study, for example, 
the degree to which there's bipartisanship in Congress. And what we're seeing today is that there's more obstructionism in Congress. There's, you know, less of a willingness to cross the aisle and support the legislation of someone from the other side than there was um, in the, uh, you know, just after the U.S. Civil War when they started to measure these things. So by some accounts, we are even more polarized than we were um, in the 1850s and 1860s. And that's extremely concerning because of the, the violence we saw then and the violence we saw on January 6th and the possibility for violence that continues to be uh, propagated by too many voices in our country today. It's interesting that um, the people who attacked uh, the Capitol building on the 6th of January found a weak point in our system. And if they had been more successful, we would not be talking right now. That was a terrible point uh, in our most recent history. And because it hasn't been uh, sought down to the, the roots of it and what actually happened, who was involved, this can happen again. Um, I want to just take a, a, a bit of a change here. Uh, you use a term in the book, uh, attractors. And you say yep. they are simply patterns that form over time in some systems, such as brains, bodies, relationships, groups, communities, nations, and galaxies, and resist change. And this is what we're talking about overall in this country now. There are attractors that don't want to change. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, right, attractors are just something that mathematicians find when they measure something over time. And um, so one... Uh, way to think about an attractor is, is like an addiction. Addictions are, in fact, attractors. If you get ad addicted to a particular substance um, or you get addicted to an abusive relationship, you know, you, you want to step back and say, well, well, what is addiction? Well, addiction is understood as what we call a biopsychosocial structural problem. It's not just something within my biochemistry or, or just within my psychology, but it's also in my relationships, it's in my social patterns, it's probably affected by my socioeconomic status. You know, there are a variety of individual, relational, and structural components that contribute to addiction. And when you're deep in addiction, you know, it's very difficult not to slide back into those patterns. You really have to change course. And as they say in AA, you have to change the people, places, and things in your life. You really have to choose a different path, choose different relationships, not go to the places you used to go when you would pick up, but go to new places, different places that don't trigger that in you, because that's what we see with what we call attractors. Again, attractors are kind of an abstract idea from mathematics, but there really are any pattern that we start to be chronically fall into in our life. And it might be a pattern, you know, we have attractor patterns in our families, right? My, I, I have a bunch of siblings. I have five siblings. Mm. And whenever I see my siblings, whenever we get together, you know, we're now in our 60s and 70s, and and yet we still are, we fall into the same kind of pecking order, right? No, yes. <laughs> the youngest is, plays the youngest, and the oldest is in charge and telling everybody what to do. You know, and, and again, it's like we're, we live far away from each other. We rarely see each other. But when we do, we snap right back into that pattern. That's an attractor pattern. It's something that can be formed early on, but 
when it comes to like attractor a, a patterns in terms of political polarization today, well, it's uh, it's influenced by a lot of different things. It's influenced by the media, by mainstream media. It's influenced by the social media and the algorithms that sort us and the extreme voices on social media. But it's also influenced by the people in our lives who we do and don't talk to, who we're comfortable talking politics with or not, right? Who we listen to um, in, on, on the radio. There are so many factors that contribute to these feelings that we have about them, you know, the outgroup, the outgroup political group, and us, our group. And, and one of the ways to understand that is that it's not any one thing that's dividing this country. That's sort of why I offered this idea of attractors, because so many researchers, um, well-intentioned researchers, try to understand political division in, uh, according to the one big thing, right? Well, it's moral, you know, moral value differences between red and blues Americas, Americans. No, no, it's differences in brain sensitivity to threat of red and blue Americans, or it's, it's gerrymandering, or it's, you know, there are, the list goes on and on and on. And so the way we tend to study things like political polarization is to try to find the essence, the one thing that explains it. But if you really read into the literature on this, there are many things that people say are critical factors. And what I'm saying is it, that's partially true, but largely wrong, because it's not any one thing that contributes to our current state of enmity, political enmity. It's how all of these things start to feed each other and align in complicated ways that create these kind of cultural riptides that just pull us apart. And so addressing any one of those things, addressing only gerrymandering or only social media vitriol or only, you know, uh, untruths on, on mainstream media, addressing any one of those things is going to be insufficient to changing the culture. We have to understand the conditions under which these things do change. And attractor dynamics and studying attractor dynamics, you know, in science gives us some insights into when these kinds of patterns actually do change and stay changed. Let me just clarify one thing. We're not talking about farming. We're not talking about a tractor, a, a machine. We're talking about <laughs> yes, yes. A-T-T-R-A-C-T-O-R. S, attractors, things that attract us. And let me, let me quote from your book. I think this is a perfect place to interject this. Highly complex, volatile problems cause us to feel more anxious. Think in more simplistic terms. Make worse decisions. Trust fewer people. Prefer hostile leaders. Close ranks and prepare for battle. Well, does this in part explain a Trumpism and maybe that is an attractor, a in part? Yeah, that is what I'm trying to describe in that paragraph is that these things, these different elements, our beliefs, our attitudes, our feelings, they do start to feed each other and they start to create, again, these kind of syndromes within us, between us, and in our families and communities that, you know, basically separate us, start to have us blame the other side for the problems that we have in this country and ultimately, you know, get to a place where we don't trust them and we believe that they're trying to harm the country. So it is how these different elements start to really align 
in ways that reinforce each other. And therefore, you know, these problems feel bigger than us because it's not, again, just me and my attitudes or even you and your attitudes. It's how these various elements of our relationships, our social networks, our our social media, our, uh, you know, our mainstream media, how all of these things align to basically pull us apart into these camps and ultimately stop having contact with the other side. We're seeing patterns of what we call structural sorting. We see not only uh, reds moving into more rural areas and blues, you know, into more urban areas, but even within cities, um, we're seeing pockets of neighborhoods that are much more red and much more blue. And so you're seeing physical sorting where we're moving away from the other tribe and moving closer into our own tribes. And that is a recipe that research from around the world tells us is a recipe for violence. When you have very little, you know, when you look close to members of the other tribe, but have very little contact with them on a day-to-day basis, then it's much easier when there is a conflict to see them all as the same, to blame them, and to ultimately promote violence. Hmm. In recounting uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's essay about Parisians feeling freer under the Nazis' rule during World War II, are you suggesting that people supporting Trump want authoritarian rule to be freer? And what do you mean by freer? Uh, No, what I'm trying to capture in that statement is that um, Sartre said, uh, made a comment that, uh, you know, we were never so free as when the Nazis uh, occupied Paris, when the Nazis marched into Paris. And what he was saying was, you know, basically that when there is an evil like that, the world becomes morally more clear, right? That there's something about their evil we're victims of their aggression and and perhaps insanity um and therefore it's simple and and how we what we do from here on is simple we resist them at every choice we stand up to them but you know we're morally right they're morally wrong and there's something very comfortable comforting about that despite the fact that it was you know was nazis and it was an extremely threatening time but psychologically that kind of simplicity of they're bad, we're good, is comforting. There is, we find some kind of comfort in that kind of moral simplicity or oversimplification. And that's not just with Trump voters. That's with the left and the right. We, you know, we see on the left in cancel culture, we see the same kind of drive towards purification. You have to have the same attitudes and behaviors as I do in order for, for you to be part of my team. Right. So we see that happening, that same kind of moral oversimplification happening on the left. And you see it happening on the right with with Trump voters. So it's it's something that we're all as humans susceptible to, um, particularly when the world gets complicated and, uh, you know, fast paced. And there's so much information coming at us and it, it starts to feel threatening and overwhelming under those conditions. We look for simple answers. We look for simple truths. Um, and, and, and so when someone says, you know, it's the Mexicans coming for your jobs and, and oversimplifies the complexity of our world that way, for some of us, that starts to feel comforting because we want some other outgroup to blame 
for the anxiety and chaos that we feel in our life. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, the senator from New York, uh, and I grew up in New York, so I, and I did vote for him, I believe, uh, he said that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And yet, uh, Kellyanne Conway disagrees. Uh, she had different facts, and she thought that they could be applied as well. well what happens, you, we start off with a negotiation, but when people are not agreeing on the facts, how do you have a conversation that will continue? Well, it's a good, it's a really good question, and it does show the extreme degrees that that our country has come to in terms of reporting factual information. But you know, it's it's so interesting. There was a there was a recent study that not recent over the past ten years that was looking at clim- beliefs in climate change, and what they found is that the more educated that Republican voters were the less they believed in the science of climate change. The more educated Democratic voters were, the more they believed in the science of climate change. What this tells us is is that these beliefs of this thing we call climate change, which, of course, 98% of scientists believe has has been affected by, you know, by man-made um, efforts that we're contributing to climate change, um, that they're not really... Um, that affected by information and science and facts. It's more of a value orientation, and it's some, oftentimes more of an emotional response to it, that information. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that I think politicians that are politically oriented and trying to either gain power or hold on to power weaponize what they need to weaponize what they can and and the weaponization of facts in a time of trumpism has been you know again it's not something the country hasn't seen before we saw similar types of things in the 1850s um and you know propaganda yellow journalism has been around for for centuries at this point um, but it definitely is, uh, shows the extent to which certain political groups and certain political actors will go to defend their power and hold on to their power, damn the consequences. Uh, you point out that it is abundantly clear by now that meaningful change in polarization dynamics situated within landscapes is exceptionally hard to realize. And I think you mentioned the bombshell effect. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, again, so because the patterns of political polarization that we're in are so multi-determined, there's so so many layers that are pulling us apart from each other, um, that it's not just, you know, you can't just wake up one day and say, okay, that's it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I won't feel this anymore. Well, as soon as you hear the news, as soon as you talk to somebody on the elevator, as soon as you, you know, you're going to be pulled back into this. So it's not, it's not just about our choice to change. We really sometimes need things to change, change around us. And one of the things that research has told us helps people, families, communities, and societies change course away from an extremely contentious conflict is when there is uh, there are some kinds of major shocks to the system when there's a a health scare 
you know, for you personally or in your family, when there's, you know, an automobile accident, when there's um, a scandal in your community, um, or societally when things like COVID occur, or the racial reckoning that were, that many became more aware of since when when George Floyd was murdered, and in the in the in the context of that, when there are these kinds of what we call political shocks that really are destabilizing, and they force many of us to again come reckon and come to terms with our own decisions and contributions to problems and our own assumptions these kinds of bombshells destabilizing periods um are oftentimes precursors to society's changing course it is one of the things that research tells us is that most societies that are able to escape long-term protracted conflicts that have lasted 30 or 40 years um, most of them have been preceded by some kind of major destabilizing factor that changed certain things that led to other changes that led to other changes. And then after a period of a few years, you see those societies make a major pivot. And so what that means in terms of the story of the way out is that the current conditions are ripe for all of us to say, okay, let's take let's let's take a pause here let's do some kind of you know moral reckoning of our own and think uh, is this how i want to live my life is this the society that i want to promote do i want to just stay hating half of the nation and blaming half of the nation for what's happening to us or is there another way to figure out how to engage with people not in the extremes but people in that more moderate middle that might be willing to a, a different kind of conversation, a different kind of relationship, and perhaps more functional problem solving. Well, and you point out, of course, uh, that the $10 trillion question is, what does it take to tip us in this direction? What really? Well, again, it's hard. Well, what we know is that shocks like this are some of the conditions. The question is whether we as individuals or groups um, or our leaders take this period, this time seriously and say it's time to regroup. So, you know, I, I, um, I was fortunate enough to be approached by the Biden administration during the transition um, and they were interested in trying to think about how do you depolarize America. And they asked me to write up some science briefs, you know, to cite some research that is relevant to what they're trying to do. And one of the things I realized as I worked on those briefs is that in some ways, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, and their administration are in the worst possible position mm. to deal with <laughs> political depolarization because they're they're hated and seen as illegitimate by, you know, almost half of the country. So they're not in a great position to actively come out and say, okay, we're going to, it's going to turn the temperature down on this. However, there are things that they can do. They can, you know, stop the, the hello. Hello, Peter. Yeah. Okay. Now I can hear you. You kind of dropped out for a moment. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I'll back up. Uh, what, do you know where you where I ended? Uh, no, because I wasn't sure when you ended. Uh, okay. 
All right. Well, I was just saying that, um, you know, the Biden administration is not well positioned to actively, directively go after political polarization. But there are things that they can not do and things that they can do to, to turn the temperature down, not not do in terms of, you know, that they, they can not use rhetoric that vilifies half the country that, you know, that that is divisive. And, and you know, Trump as a leader was uh, really saw the power of division and leaned into the power of division and basically, you know, accusing half of the country of being uh, um, malicious. Um, and and to some degree, that worked well enough for Trump, certainly to become president and remain in office for four years. But it does have this significant deleterious effect on our culture, on our climate, and ultimately on violence. So our political leaders can learn to not do that. And I think the Biden administration has figured that out. And they can learn that, you know, there are legitimate frustrations that have mobilized people into believing or or wanting this kind of, you know, anti-establishment governance process of, you know, attacking all of the norms of of our governance procedure, because a lot of the country has been left behind and is frustrated and is exhausted. So there are things that they can do to start to remedy that, which, frankly, I think the Biden administration is working tirelessly to do through the stimulus packages and through infrastructure bills you know, to try to make people's lives less miserable and therefore maybe start to promote a little bit more trust in the government. So those things our leaders can do that can help bring the temperature down in terms of people's concerns and grievances, as well as in terms of how we're talking to each other. Um, But to some degree, again, this has to come down to us and our own decisions about our own lives and who we associate with, who we listen to from the other side. Do we listen to anybody on the other side? Do we travel to places where we meet people that are of a different political persuasion from us socially, right? Or, or you know, do we visit people on vacation that are different from us? All of those things matter in terms of, like the group in Boston, growing different kinds of relationships and understandings of one another that can ultimately help us change from the bottom up um, our society and our culture. So what do you actually do in your difficult conversation lab? So what we did, what we do in the lab is we study, again, the conditions under which conversations over potentially polarizing issues go well or go poorly. So we bring we, we send out a survey to a couple hundred people on a variety of issues. And then we match people who are on opposite ends of a spectrum on some issue like pro-life, pro-choice. And then once we have them identified, we invite them into the lab, either physically or virtually because of COVID. We haven't been able to physically bring people together. So we, we, we do it now on Zoom. Um, and we then study the conditions under which those conversations actually go well enough that people feel like they were able to learn, they would continue the conversation with the other person, they'd be interested in doing that again, they feel okay about themselves and what was said, and um, so, or uh, the conditions where they, they just get stuck. They move into anger and frustration and blame and contempt and, and, and don't ever want to 
talk to that other person again. So what we do in the lab is we systematically study different conditions. We study how information is presented to people and how that leads to different kinds of conversations. We study the kinds of processes of facilitation that can happen around these conversations and which ones are more or less helpful. We study, um, you know, different issues, uh, whether certain issues are particularly heated or hotbed issues in a particular place at a certain time. So it's really a laboratory where we do research, where we study when these conversations go well or go poorly and why. And I guess in New York, um, it's a larger area, and although it's very heavily democratic, left-leaning, you can still find a number of people who think differently. Um, my wife tried uh, a civility uh, conversation group here. Uh, our city of Fort Bragg has only 7,200 people. Uh, yes, there are probably some right-leaning people, but it's harder to find them. Most everyone is a hardcore left or a moderately left person. But I think she did an admirable job of trying to get people to speak about difficult situations in a way that wouldn't offend anyone, similar to, I guess, what you're doing in the uh, conversation lab, difficult conversation lab. So uh, I guess there are other people around the country that are probably trying to have conversations about difficult things with difficult people in order to lower the temperature. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's true. There are many, I think I had mentioned that there are something like 7,000 groups in across the country community-based groups that are trying to bridge the divides between red and blues and trying to have these conversations. What we do in our, in our lab is study the, the conditions under which they go well or go poorly in order to allow science, you know, systematic research to help us know how to do these better and how to do these in ways that are less consequential or harmful to people and that actually ultimately help. Um, and so ours is really a research space, and our hope is that it can help inform these various groups who are oftentimes well-intentioned but maybe not sufficiently familiar with the research, the science. Um, and that's, again, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is my hope is that many of these groups and organizations will read this and say, oh, well, we've been trying to just encourage people to get together and talk over a beer or a cup of coffee, but maybe that's not the right way to go because maybe things are too tense right now and those things can backfire and therefore maybe it's not ethically the right thing to do. So maybe what we need to do is rethink how we do this and pivot in that direction. That's what, you know, one of the hopes of publishing this book is that it has you know, sufficient influence that the science is allowed to have a, a, a more direct impact on the people on the ground who are trying to do good things. In your book, you mentioned Norman Cousins and the healing success of laughter. And I wonder, um, before you start any uh, hardcore conversation in the uh, difficult conversation lab, would it be appropriate to put on something that everybody will laugh at first to get them in the mood to be able to discuss more serious things? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I mean, again, one of the challenges is that the, the, today is that the is that comedy that is the most attractive to the most number of people is usually at the expense of the other side, right? Like John Stewart, fantastic show. 
um, or Trevor Noah's show, or, you know, these shows that have a political edge to them, Bill Maher, um, oftentimes are funny at the expense of them, right? They're, they're, they're calling out Republicans, they're calling out Trump voters, they're calling out, you know, and they're, and they're, they're laughing at them. And that kind of humor is not going to work with people if you're, you know, if you're that target. So, so the so you're absolutely right that positivity, laughter is a way to open us up, open up our neurological experiences of the world, open up our thinking, um, and loosen us up. Um, so, if absolutely, if there is humor, if there are things that you know, red and blue Americans can together enjoy, laugh at, appreciate, um, then that can be really beneficial. If it's humor that uh, that is weaponized against another side, it's much more likely to just elicit more defensiveness um, from that side. Well, I was thinking more about the classics, like uh, uh, the uh, Who's on First with uh, yeah. Costello and uh, Bud Abbott, uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the Marx Brothers, or the Three Stooges, or even Desi and Lucy. Uh, her uh, yeah. production line for chocolate was a classic. Uh, I think everyone will laugh yeah. at that without disparaging any one particular group. Now we have about. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. Go ahead. We have about four minutes to go, and I think that okay. uh, you, near the end of your book, you talk about Watertown, New York, a very mm, conservative area at the northern edge of New York State, near Canada, where there is yeah. the mountain. Uh, the what is what is it called? The mountain unit of the army who uh, they yeah. attack mountain mountainous areas. So it's a very militaristic area. And yet, what you say is, this is what sustainable political tolerance looks like. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, so um, I came across uh, Waterton, New York, and Jefferson County, which is in upstate New York, um, from an article written in The Atlantic uh, in 2018 by Amanda Ripley, um, which was a profile of that place. And that was part of a, a couple of articles that they put out she was working with a group called PredictWise that was looking at the most and least tolerant political count, uh, counties in America. You know, there are over 3,000 counties in America, in America, and they did research looking at effective polarization within those counties and then tried to understand the conditions that determined whether people, you know, could tolerate the other side or not. And Jefferson was one of the top ranked in terms of political tolerance at the time uh, counties in America. And it was it's ironic because it's in the middle of Trump country. It went to Trump, I think, by 20 points in, in 2016 and then by 30 points again in 2020. So very, very strong Trump land. Nevertheless, you see there more for example, mixed uh, political marriages, um, you know, re Republican Democratic marriages are on the decline nationwide. Um, but there you have about one in four, about 25 percent of the marriages that are mixed, um, which means that their families have conversations that are mixed and the progeny of those families tend to be either more independent or more open-minded to the other side because they've, you know, experienced both sides with their parents. Um, but so there are 
more mixed marriages, and there are just more mixed spaces where people from both political persuasions come together, live together, play together, play sports together, worship together, go to work together. And, and so when you have those kinds of what anthropologists call cross-cutting ties, where reds and blue, red and blue Americans come together and grow up together, those are the conditions where you see more tolerance and acceptance of the other side, because it's very difficult to vilify a whole group of people when you work and play basketball and hang out with you know, members of their family, you know that they're good people there. So it's very hard to oversimplify the other side. And that is the secret sauce. That is the thing that's most important for Americans to understand, is that when we start to move physically away from each other, are sorted in the algorithms of our Internet, you know, have certain friend groups, or when we look around at our social, at our parties, is there anybody that's, you know, has a different political attitude within those groups, or are they, are they very homogenous? When we start to physically and socially move away from each other like that, it is oftentimes the, the death knell for political tolerance, and ultimately it leads, or it certainly contributes to the kinds of cultural dynamics that we're stuck in and potentially to violent incidents um, uh, between reds and blues in this country. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.